Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. How's Maine, Matt? Uh, it's lovely. I am self-isolating, but it's a, it's a nice place to self-isolate. And in a few days, we will be free to leave the premises. So that'll be glorious. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Something I feel like I have noticed in my um, increasing old age is that I feel like something that has happened in media over the past few years, which I think is mostly good, is that a lot of sort of more sophisticated academic type concepts about issues of race and identity have come more into mainstream dialogue, which is largely a like it's a sign of progress, right? It's like people are trying to deploy increasingly sophisticated ideas. At the same time, some of this can be confusing because it's introduced to people not in the context of like an academic seminar, but in a political free-for-all. And it's always been my observation that there isn't a lot of sort of explicit acknowledgement that there is this kind of conceptual shift. And sometimes things flip around. I mean, to me, the most clear one of this is the idea of intersectionality, um, which is one I I actually like. I learned this in school. I I took a women's studies class. We had a thing about intersectionality. I like like read the books. I I think I know what that means in its precise original form. But conservatives have really taken up that work, which they kind of use to mean left-wing stuff I don't like. Right. It's and a relatively obscure legal concept that when I wrote a piece about it that we can drop in the show notes, that when Kimberly Crenshaw, the professor behind the term, when she coined it in the late 1980s, people did not either find it objectionable or think it was really worth this level of widespread attention. But it has become this catch-all term that for some on the right just means things I don't like that make me mad. Or, yeah, or, I mean, to even be more generous, it's it's become their descriptive term. Like, you might say, if somebody was, like, very left-wing on economics, like, he's a socialist. And so they'll say, if somebody is, like, very left-wing on questions of race and identity, ah, that's the intersectional left. But if you look at what Crenshaw was originally writing, at least, like, it didn't mean, like further left wing than someone you wrote the piece Jane I mean maybe maybe you could explain it but it's like a discreet and I think useful concept and then the term like leapt out of the box and has run all over the universe and I think we see that I think that this is one of those cases and I think Matt 
you've talked about this a lot, is that in the cases of terms like privilege and the ideas of intersectionality and systemic and institutional racism, these are ideas that have been debated by scholars uh, generally within the you know, specific fields of social studies in universities and colleges across the country and around the world. But it's been largely debated among them and then attempting. It's one of the, uh, those moments that when you take a concept that exists in academia and take it outside of the halls of academia and see how people respond to it or think about it or either project all of their fears onto it or project their desires onto it. Right. But so she's saying, basically, you know, we have a civil rights act and it it bars racial discrimination and you know, it says a lot about that. And then there's a title, Title Seven, which bars gender discrimination. Uh, but the sort of core initial example was, well, what if I want to say that a company has done something that constitutes discrimination against Black women? And that that's not racial discrimination, and it's not sex discrimination. It's an intersectional discrimination. Like it is discrimination that arises at the intersection of race and gender. And I don't know, like it's, this is like an important thing for lawyers to talk about because like you can actually file a lawsuit claiming racial discrimination or you could file a lawsuit claiming gender discrimination. And like, can you claim, well, black women are being discriminated against in a way that I think the, the specific example had to do with the use of a seniority rule. And either it was pretextual or it wasn't, but the impact was like all of the layoffs were going to be of Black women or all the Black women were going to be laid off uh, one way or the other. But, you know, so that's like, I mean, it's both an idea that's valuable, but it's also something like actually kind of concrete, right? Like right. these situations can arise and you want to know, like, does our legal system, does our political system, does the media acknowledge this? The ordinary English language, like, okay, they did something and it had a hugely disproportional impact on Black women. Like that's perfectly cogent, right? Like without me saying intersectional or like other unfamiliar words, but you know, it's legal, it's academia, it, it requires specialized vocabulary. At the same time, though, I think it's important to note that even in this kind of original setting, there's some necessary, but still like, you can understand how it can get out of control ambiguity in terms of, are we describing something in its effects agnostic of its intent? Or are we talking about the intent of something by labeling its effects, right? The idea that to identify something that has a wildly disparate impact on a particular group of people who have like multiple marginalized identities to like label that group as the losers in a situation so to speak is to say that there is something specific going on here does have like in the kind of common english language connotation a sense that they're they're deliberately being targeted even though that's not actually what the term is designed to imply. And I think a lot of the reason that it can be hard for people who aren't already fully read in on the political philosophy of identity can find concepts like this alienating is that 
you know, if you look at something like, okay, this ends up having a particular impact on like black people with disabilities, for example, it's like you, it's hard to imagine someone twirling their mustache and going, I am going to particularly screw over black people with disabilities today. But of course, that's, you know, it's, it can, it gets into these existing problems of, you know, white people seeing everything, seeing racism as intrinsically a matter of what's in someone's heart, but also just kind of a general difficulty where if you're talking about structural inequity, you aren't talking about something that primarily exists in individual intent, but you are talking about things that individuals uh, should feel a certain amount of responsibility for if they're going to get addressed. And that tension in like how, not, not like how guilty should a typical person feel, but how strong should the relationship be between this is a structural issue, not an individual issue, and nonetheless, you are individually like responsible for helping change it is something that I think we've, you know, we've seen continued tension around both among people who are skeptical of it and people who are trying to like really throw themselves into anti-racism work without necessarily having you know, who are now kind of newly throwing themselves into that work, so to speak. Dara was starting to to shift us to like another word that is sort of in the air, which is structural racism, quote unquote. That's one that like, I, I don't remember when I heard that initially. It was like a while ago, you know, like I, I, it's not new to me in this current explosion of things, but I also don't think anyone ever sat down and explained to me like, Matt, this is what I mean by structural racism. And this is where I, I do feel like there's a certain misunderstanding. Like I, I think this word is used by some people as if to say that it's like really like deep down extra difficult racism, like you might need like a dentist to find the structural racism, or, you know, really, you you need to scrutinize yourself, like much more intently to see where, where the structural racism is. And I think it's almost meant to be the opposite of that. Like I, I saw a, um, I think it was a city councilman from the city of Beverly Hills, and he was committing himself uh, to fighting structural racism. And it's like Beverly Hills is structural racism. Like there's this little exclave from the city of Los Angeles that its own like special, whiter, richer city. And of course they would tell you like, well, look, it's not a segregated city, which is true. It's it's 2% African-American, I think 5% Latino. But they're like here in, in the surrounded by this very diverse city, but they have cut themselves off from it. They have their own school district. They don't contribute to the taxation base. And, you know, I, I'm sure it's it's nice people living there. Um, their city councilman, for, some, for a reason, is like expressing his desire to fight structural racism. But then you have to ask yourself, it's like, how... How committed are people who are saying this? Because we're talking about struct like it's structural racism is structural. Right. 
I went back and looked up the first time that the term institutional racism or systemic racism was used. And it comes from 1967 from the activist Stokely Carmichael, who later is known as Kwame Ture. And I want to quote quickly a piece in 1967 in which he says, when a black family moves into a home in a white neighborhood and is stoned, burned, or routed out, they are the victims of an overt act of individual racism, which most people will condemn. But it is institutional racism that keeps black people locked in dilapidated slum tenements, subject to the daily prey of exploitative slumlords, merchants, loan sharks, and discriminatory real estate agents. The society either pretends it does not know of this latter situation or is, in fact, incapable of doing anything meaningful about it. And so that idea that so much of our focus in how we think about racism and one of the challenges of talking about racism where it does become a personality flaw, an individual cudgel against the other, the idea that you have to say certain magic words for it to count as racism. I think we've seen that in a couple of instances recently in which the racial or racialized motivations of police officers or the people who killed Ahmed Arbery in Georgia were very much debated until in the case of the of Ahmed Arbery, when there was recording and evidence that the people who killed him used racial slurs at the time and afterwards. And then you saw some conservative commentators being like, oh, they were racist. And like, yes, I think that we should have gotten there by now. And I, I think a lot about this. And I, th- I think of the ways in which media has intentionally or unintentionally given perhaps increased life to this idea is that the stories of racism that we grew up with Um, or I think many people grew up with were the stories of like Mississippi burning or ghosts of Mississippi or kind of the stories of the civil rights movement in which it was this little girl's trying to go to school and hear all these angry racist white people screaming at her, trying to stop her from going to school in which racism becomes the visible evil that it is. But the idea of systemic and institutional racism is that it is normal. It is a normalized practice. It redlining becomes a normalized idea that is as, you know, it's not, as Dara put it, someone saying, I really want to screw over black people with disabilities. It's, well, it just so happens that the people who live in this area happen to share these particular characteristics. And it also happens that maybe we aren't going to put a metro station or a bus stop there because of undesirable elements or something like that. I always think of um in D.C., the Georgetown area around Georgetown University does not have a metro stop. And there's a very, there are a number of, of very specific reasons for that, mostly that people who campaigned against Georgetown having a metro stop were very concerned about elements arriving in from the rest of Washington. And so it's that the normalization of racism as common practice in institutions, which then allows that kind of racism to separate itself from the ghosts of Mississippi N-word kind of racism that I think most people think of when they think about racism as a subject. The problem here, of course, is that the kind of interpersonal overt racism also does not go away. Like, I remember being kind of frustrated during you know, during the Obama administration, when the DOJ Civil Rights Division would, you know, release its investigations into police departments, and the things that everyone focused on would always be the most overtly racist, like emails that got sent within the department, or, you know, the acts of overt racism that could be identified. And 
you know, I definitely remember, and I'm pretty sure that I wrote some pieces saying like, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's not the real story here. Looking at the, you know, patterns and practices and policies that affected numerically a lot more people than, you know, anyone who came into contact with an individual officer who used a racial slur over email. Like, that's the story here. But you can't separate the two cleanly. A lot of the reason that these policies and practices have continued unabated are people in the system who fervently believe that it's okay to put the black man down, so to speak. And so it can be hard to usefully shift the lens on systemic racism when, you know, without making it seem like you're in denial about the role that interpersonal racism continues to play, or without kind of reflecting accurately the relationship between people who are unwittingly perpetuating structural issues and people who are fully wittingly perpetuating that. I think the other thing about this is, as, as Darren was saying, but, you know, taking to some extent the other side of it is that it's not wrong, I think, for some people to feel like there is a little bit of a bait and switch happening where like society reached a consensus that racism is bad with like one understanding of what that means. And then people want to say, well, a set of other things is also racism. And therefore you have to buy into that being bad. And they are different things, right? Like there is a real difference. I, I was talking about Beverly Hills before. And and Jane, you were quoting uh, Stokely Carmichael on this, like, there is an actual difference between Black people are not allowed to live in this town, Black people are not allowed to attend this school, and we have various structures of economic exclusion that operate in a practical sense to leave the majority of the African-American population excluded. From, like, like, those aren't the same thing. And convincing people that one thing is bad isn't the same as convincing people that another thing is bad. And it's part of the reason we had such a, um, I think, a like national breaking point after Barack Obama's election. Because from one standpoint, right, Obama rising to become president of the United States was the ultimate signpost after Condoleezza Rice, after Colin Powell, after a million other things, that the United States has developed what they used to call in, in revolutionary France, careers open to talent. Nobody is going to be formally excluded from the possibility of becoming a CEO of a major American corporation, of becoming the president of the United States, of serving on the Fed board uh, because of their racial background. And that is a huge change from how America was, you know, in the past, but like the not that distant past. Like lots of people are alive today when that was really not the case. So to one group of people, that's like the proof that we have like solve the racism problem. And then to another group of people, it shows exactly how little that accomplishes to address structural issues, right? That like the the fact that it like it really sort of had been solved demonstrates that there's more emptiness to that achievement than you might have thought or hoped if you were sitting around in 1962. Like, will there ever be a black president? And like 
boy, that, that, that seems like that would be hard. And there would have to be a lot of changes to make that happen. But in a certain sense, it was like the changes that were necessary to make that happen seem a little bit superficial. And I think that's why it's become so, it, it's why like, far from becoming like post-racial, we've had like more racial dialogue than ever in the past 10 years. I think because that tension has become so acute. And I do think that there is a rhetorical wave of like some people who are interested in like improving racial equity in their own, you know, in, in, in institutional contexts, some pundits, et cetera, who, especially during the Obama era, were using the idea of structural racism as a way to bridge that, right? Like to, to say, look, we're not saying it's your fault, white people, but there's more work to be done. That's the kind of rhetoric that leads to like, oh, diversity is better for everyone because you have a diversity of ideas. The idea that you could somehow, that this would be a win-win situation, both for white people and for everybody else, was, you know, something that you could, that, that by talking about structural as opposed to inter interpersonal racism, you could kind of address. And that's not where we are anymore, both because it's very clear that as a matter of fact, if you as an individual benefit wittingly or unwittingly from generations of historically accumulated privilege, that that does to a certain extent mean that you are taking opportunities that other people could have. Um, and because I think there's just a sense of, of there's, there's a an earned impatience in the kind of the fact that there was a lot of racial dialogue during the Obama era that does not, you know, that has had a lot of impact in a certain segment of professional left-leaning white people, but not a whole lot of obvious material achievement in the world at large. There's a certain amount of, well, we've tried to be nice and we've tried to be conciliatory and like it hasn't gotten us anywhere. So we might as well be honest and say, yes, we are asking you as an individual person to give up some of your power. Yes, we are asking you to give your money to people of color. We are asking you to like think about the extent to which you are the beneficiary of hoarded opportunities. And that is, I think, a more honest way to talk about structural racism, but it's for obvious reasons, a way that doesn't easily lend itself to broad coalition building. Right. I think that that's one of the challenges that we have in these conversations is that when I personally, Jane Coaston, I'm talking about racism on Twitter or in my work, I am not doing so with the objective of attempting to get a political coalition formed that would then be able to pass legislation or get people into office to then pass legislation that I like. I'm relieved that is not my responsibility. I thank God every day that that is not my responsibility. But it does mean that how I can talk about race and racism is very different from the way that Chuck Schumer can talk about race and racism. But I want to go back to something that Dara mentioned, which I think is really important. Um, I went back and I, we dropped it. I'll drop it in the show notes after this episode. But the person who is credited with coming up with the concept of white privilege and this idea of privilege theory more broadly, is, her name is Peggy McIntosh. And in 1988, she is a women's studies professor at Wellesley, and she writes a paper called White Privilege and Male Privilege. And she comes at it thinking about how a few years before she publishes this paper, 
she had read these essays by black women in the Boston area who were talking about the challenges they'd had working with white women. And I'll, I'll quote her that she says, my first response was to say, I don't see how they can say that about us. I think we're nice. And my second response was deeply racist, but this is where I was in 1980. I thought, I especially think we're nice if we work with them. And so this idea of racism as something that's, again, very difficult to get across in the in political coalition building terms, but I think pretty easy to understand, is that, as she says in this New Yorker interview, niceness has nothing to do with it. Racism is not a synonym for being mean. It is not a synonym for being cruel or being a big jerk. It is a specific thing and is a specific thing that exists in every aspect of how we think about the structures that shape our lives, how we think about the structures that shape our culture, how the structures that shape our politics. So one of the things when I spoke with Kimberly Crenshaw, she talked about how she was responding to a world in which the courts thought of themselves as, you know, we no longer have these specific discriminatory policies. We no longer have, to quote her, the irrational distortions of bias. And now we can exist in this neutral, benign state of impersonally apportioned justice, which she understood that racism did not end with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Racism, at, you know, I, I think that there's some people who seem to think that in 1964, racism ended and then Malcolm X was mean. But she was understanding that a racism decoupled from a moral argument is still racism. And I think about that in terms of how that is a message that I think makes a lot of sense to me, a message that I think is correct. But I also understand that it is not a politically salient one. I guess a question that comes to mind when I hear this, right, is that if we're talking about really a political topic, right, because we're talking about structures, not individual people's feelings, then what is the point of talking about it in a way that isn't designed to maximize political efficacy? Right. Because if you're talking about individual people and their sort of feelings and things like that, then it's like, well, okay, that's like, that's sort of pre political. The push to get more LGBT people to be out was very potent and I think very effective on an interpersonal level because it, it like confronted people with the reality of the lives of people in their personal lives. And then quite a while later, that led to political change because sentiments were changed. Um, and so that like that worked as a strategy. But like, what is the strategy for addressing sources of systemic disadvantage, if not political coalition building with all the sort of shitty compromises that entails? I mean, I guess the the answer to that might be, or one answer to that might be that there's a difference between institutional politics and national electoral politics, right? A lot of what we're seeing right now is in individual industries and institutions. Obviously, this is happening like very visibly in media because people throughout the kind of rungs of the organizational ladder have independent platforms, which makes it a little easier to see kind of revolts happening from below, that these are issues that 
people are asking their own workplaces, their own organizations to address. And that isn't pre-political. Like It's obviously political in the pure sense of politics as the collective life of a community. But it does involve, because it's smaller scale and less mediated, a little more of the, hey, you know us, you care about us. This is what we're saying. What we need you to do is is first listen and secondly, give us what we ask for because you trust us. And so that I think is some of the, you know, if you want to take a particularly optimistic view toward this moment, that's what you would want to start seeing, right? Like there are ways in which the current moment feels similar to the opening months of Me Too, uh, which is something I think I've, you know, I think I think has kind of been percolating beneath the surface and hasn't been addressed. You know, things that a lot of people on the short end of power dynamics understood to be wrong are fully erupting into view. There were not a lot of institutions that like made policy changes as a result of Me Too. There were a lot of kind of high profile cases and not necessarily the work of, hey, how are we, you know, a few years out making sure that these problems are not recurring? You can see some new rumblings of men who have been abusive toward women, partly, I think, because of white women's frustration with the fact that that never got resolved fully. So there is an outcome here that doesn't necessarily rely on the kind of breadth of coalition building that you would need to succeed in national politics. The question is, how much is that going to benefit anybody who isn't already in a white-collar professional environment? Because non-white-collar professional environments are structured by totally different norms and realities of power than just, hey, you know me, you care about me, I'm asking you to fix this. And if you're looking at that, you know, labor relations isn't exactly the same realm as national electoral politics, but it's hard to imagine, you know, the fight for 15 movement being able to easily pivot to kind of clear demands that are going to address the intersection of like low wage labor and intergenerational racial wealth gaps without thinking more about how do you build a coalition to talk about racism that does acknowledge that the white people who are suffering, you know, the white people who like are fighting for a $15 minimum wage are still in a different position than the people of color and specifically black people who are fighting for a $15 minimum wage. Right. It's interesting because I've been I think one of my biggest issues with how we're handling this current moment is that media is reflecting on itself and talking about itself. And in general, we are talking about race and racism existing among institutions in which you and I and other people inhabit and not the institutions in which structural racism, I think, causes the most real harm. I think that structural racism is bad anywhere. It's poisonous anywhere. But we don't get to hear from the folks who are working in the service industry because we're not listening to them. We don't get to hear from folks who are simultaneously over-policed and under-policed because their stories are not as interesting to us. I was struck by... um a piece in the New York Times by Thomas Chatterton Williams, where he talked about the the whole incident with um, the birder, the Harvard-educated birder in uh, Central Park. And he was struck by the fact that so much of the commentary on that incident 
noted that the black man in question had attended Harvard and was really was a member of the Audubon Society and you really spoke to what some would say would be kind of quote unquote white interests. I think that that's not really a thing that exists. Um, You know, I think it's high time that black people are allowed to enjoy birding or Formula One or doing any other series of things that white Americans may also enjoy. But there is a sense that this this focus on one making the victims of race racism and the victims of racist policies seem more like the liberal whites who we feel as if we need to get their sympathies in order to make change. That's why I think that there's this big you see this so much on kind of the fringes of the far right, where anytime that a black person is um, murdered by police or anytime a black person experiences anything, there's an idea of like, well, they were bad people. So that's why this happened. As if the police officer who killed George Floyd was well aware of his entire criminal history at the time. And that's why he did it. But I think that there's a sense in which this this is a conversation that it, that touches the lives of so many people who are not right now being permitted to take part in it. But this is I'm going to be I'm going to be provocative oh, um, oh, about, okay. about about the bird watching guy. No, I mean this is where I think where we started with with intersectionality is very relevant though because part of the point that people were trying to make about that guy and one of the reasons why police violence has become such a centerpiece for discussion of this issue is that this is a clear example of a situation in which obtaining class privilege is not helping Black men. And that, you know, you see these stories, right? Like I have heard, if if you work in a professional setting that is even slightly integrated, like you will know Black men who have college degrees and good jobs and work with you, and they have stories about their treatment by police that are both very painful to them. And one of the reasons it's so painful is that it is not something that they are able to escape by going to a good school, by getting a good job, even by moving to a good neighborhood. Because you move to a good neighborhood where the police aren't routinely hassling people, and now you don't fit in in that neighborhood, right? So it's a it's a it's a kind of an intersectional politics of black male professionals that is different from the experience of working class black men or working class Latino men, for that matter, who also experience this kind of thing, but have like many problems, many of which are specifically associated with economic circumstances and could potentially be transcended by a minimum wage increase or a different housing policy or millions of other things. And so like, that's why people are talking about the fact that he was a birder and he went to Harvard and this, that, and the other thing, because it's like, there you are in Central Park, right? Which is like the middle of the fancy part of Manhattan, trying to do your like bougie, ridiculous hobby. And you're being hassled on account of your race, right? Right. And that is both actually like less typical than a million other things, like just not having much money, but also more like irreducibly racial. Right. The idea of this is that there is no bar one can clear in which one stops being perceived as a black man or a black woman. 
There is no degree you can get, no job you can win rightfully in which you will not be in some way accused of having gotten that job on because of your race. It's really a damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you get the job, it's because you're a affirmative action candidate. If you don't get the job, it's because you weren't good enough because you're black. But I would actually, in some ways, on this on this framing alone, compare it in some ways to how the conspiracy theory that is anti-Semitism, in which wealthy secular Jews are oh, that's an example of ex- of Jewish power, but religious Jews are also examples of Jewish power. And all of this is used as a cudgel against Jewish Americans or Jewish people in general. And you think about kind of the, the stories we tell ourselves about success in this country and in a lot of other areas, that there would be this moment where you could surpass not just your own circumstances, no matter what they may be, but the expectations or understandings of other people. But for many African-Americans in this country, there is no point where that happens. There is no point in which you cannot be seen from far away as being like, ah, that guy went to Harvard. That guy's a member of the Audubon Society. That guy has a lot to say about these specific subjects. It's like, oh, that's a black guy. And then that's all that comes with it. And I think that that's one of the hardest things about this for me personally or for a lot of people, is how much of this becomes about the flattening of individual identity to such an by people who are not you or by structures that are not you that had really have nothing to do with your internal life, but have a lot to do with how your life gets to play out. This does kind of bring me back to the question of like, what the quickest avenue for progress is, though, because when we're talking about, you know, we're we are again talking about individual people who are in positions of tremendous power, right? Like the decisions made by HR departments, the decisions made by prosecutors in terms of what charges to assess and, you know, how much they're going to allow past contact with police to serve as a proxy for criminal history. Like those are both cases in which structural racism and interpersonal racism can like coincide to great detriment and people who are not the most easily reachable like people who are not necessarily the ones who are now reassessing their role in white supremacy and particularly amenable to listening to that like bracketing the whole like wave of progressive prosecutors that's kind of something th- that has that has pre-existed this there aren't a whole lot of I'm not seeing a whole lot of HR departments, for example, saying, hey, we are as an industry taking another look at what our accepted best practices are doing to perpetuate white supremacy. Like this, the conversation is happening among people who have, in other words, high cultural capital and low social capital or like low, you know, like relatively low economic capital. And so there is, I think, a productive extent to which an opportunity hoarding lens can be helpful here. Like, young white people who are up, upwardly mobile professionals like and I'm implicating myself here hugely you know should be thinking about to what extent the their career success is going to by necessity crowd out people of color because they are going to be in positions that other people could you know could be holding that's necessary but that only gets us so far and I do get a little bit stuck on are the most easily pe- movable people in this conversation the ones that can't actually fix the problems being assessed Yes. I think that is what people should think about. Okay, let's let's take a break. Let's let's do a white paper quickly uh before everyone's got to go. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. This week's white paper is another entry in a minor ongoing weed series of, wow, it's really hard to get good data on local and state governments. The paper is called The Partisan Logic of City Mobilization, Evidence from State Lobbying Disclosures. It's written by Julia Payson of New York University. Uh, and the the finding of the paper is fairly intuitive. It's about when cities decide that they're going to hire lobbyists to lobby in their state legislatures, right? Like you can imagine lots of circumstances in which a city might need funding to happen in a particular way or, you know, budgets not to get cut, that kind of thing. And this looks at when cities make the decision that it's worth it to hire somebody as opposed to just kind of using their existing influence to lobby the representatives who are making those decisions. And it finds not that, again, like not that counterintuitively, that when there is a disconnect between the partisanship of the people running the city and their representatives in the state legislature, that the city is more likely to spend the money on hiring somebody to like make their case that this is a good way to communicate what are the really high priorities for the city. And so if you imagine that the state legislator may not have super strong opinions on every single issue coming before them, that hiring a lobbyist is a good way to signal to the state legislator what are some easy ways they can work with the city on things that might be more important to the city than they are to the legislator representing them. The thing that makes this paper interesting is that it's the result of knitting together 50 different state lobbying databases because every state is required to public, you know, every state has disclosure laws requiring lobbyists to register their interactions, but there isn't an integrated database. You know, there are different standards for how often, for for how restrictive they are and how, how they have to report. There are different standards for what kind of lobbying, you know, has to get disclosed and when, for example, like the intergovernmental affairs office within a city government has to disclose when it's lobbying the state as opposed to, you know, somebody working for a private company. But by knitting by like knitting all of these databases together and cross-referencing them with a bunch of different data sets, the author is able to, you know, demonstrate that this fairly intuitive conclusion is in fact true, that you're more likely to, whether the city is being run by Republicans or Democrats, if the if their representative in the state legislature is a Democrat or a Republican respectively, they're more likely to like go the extra mile to make sure their voice is being heard. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I... 
I, I thought that was a good one. I mean, it was it was interesting to see. It's sort of what you would think. Um, I, I've also been interested in this because I happen to have known personally a few different people who've worked in Washington as lobbyists for really big cities. And they have all been incredibly cynical about their work, uh, mostly feeling like they are there to advance their boss's uh, personal, larger political aspirations and having very little good to say about their actual work on behalf of the city. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think people people who work in politics professionally, like, put on a bigger front of sort of cynicism uh, than is really warranted. This is looking at a slightly different thing, but the more common thing of, like, municipalities lobbying in state legislatures. Um, but, like, the basic message here is that they do it for, like, a pretty good reason. That like, this is how you get people who you might expect to be sympathetic to do what you actually need them to do, rather than just sort of their best guess of what you need them to do. I mean, it connects in a way to our earlier discussion, um, but it's like, you need from the people in power what you actually need, not just their sympathy. And, you know, like having a lobbyist there to be like, yo, this is what we want, like that, that works, it helps. Agreed. Okay, so uh, let's wrap it up there. Um, thanks uh, to Jane and Dara. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. Mm-hmm.